Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 309th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting across the world this week from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard where entertainment meets technology. Last week, as you know, if you listen regularly, I was in Pattaya in Thailand where I made presentations to terrific audiences for a company named called Emerging Trends, which I'll, I talked about a bit last week, but I'll talk about more in the coming weeks. And uh, I just want to send a shout out to new listeners we have in Thailand and just say welcome to the show. And next week, I'm heading off to Melbourne, Australia for a conference for a company called ALH, which is Australia's largest food and beverage organization. So that should be fun. More than a few drinks in the dressing room, I guess. The feminist dating app Bumble is adding more than 50,000 new listeners a day. And it's taking aim at LinkedIn. Bumble started off as the dating app where people swipe through potential partners, but only women are allowed to initiate a conversation. Now, Bumble's got 30 employees who are... 90% women, as you'd expect, who work out of Austin. And it was founded in response to women's dating issues, the issues they have with men, go figure, and their issues with gender dynamics. Um, Whitney Wolf, who formed it, had a pretty dramatic exit from the dating act Timber, Timber, Tinder, where she served as VP of marketing. Uh, Wolf brought a sexual harassment suit against the former colleagues, accusing them of discrimination and stripping her of her co-founder title. So after this dust-up with Tinder, she fled Los Angeles for Austin, where she intended to get out of this whole business and open a juice bar. But shortly after a move, she got a call from Audrey Andreev, the founder and CEO of social networking site Badoo. And three years after that first conversation, Bumble has now amassed 20 million users and adding 50,000 new users a day. It's on track to take in more than 150 million in revenue this year. Now, Bumble's users are emboldened by the app's impressively low rate of abuse reports blocking those who send unwanted nude photographs and it was the first dating app to initiate photo photo verification practices which limits the potential for fake profiles. I thought half of the fun with these dating apps were the fake profiles. I mean the people that I know they They've all sent in their brother or their cousin or their uncle or Brad Pitt's photographs or something. And uh, it's no wonder people are disappointed when they actually meet. Now, after launching its Bumble 
BFF, Best Friends Forever Vertical, a year ago, which pairs users with new friends, Wolf is repositioning the company to make room for Bumblebiz. Great name, Bumblebiz. It's a professional networking vertical debuting in early October, I think the end of next week, where users can look for work, find a business partner or hire new talent. I mean, it's head on with LinkedIn focused on women. That is a very, very smart move. Now, this approach also taps into a critical cultural zeitgeist as women push back against the subtle and overt harassment they face in business. Bumble exists to empower women. You know, talking about this um, subtle and overt harassment, I've been in business an awful long time and, and, you know, I'm a guy, but I must admit I haven't seen very much um, harassment that um, I would consider that's not part of general ordinary discussion. I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but I think sometimes these things go a bit far. Now, Wolf enlisted student ambassadors to make Tinder a hit on college campuses around the country, and that was an enormous success, you might remember. And uh, she did the same thing with Bumble, and now she's applying a similarly high-energy wide-net approach to marketing Bumblebiz. She's also recruited, recruited Queen Bees. Now, they're existing users who are social media influencers and entrepreneurs to partner with the app on networking and awareness events. It is the best way to spread the word. You know, using those um, media influencers, it is amazing. And all the booze companies have done it extraordinarily well through clubs. Now, Wolf believes that women get unwanted solicitations on LinkedIn that they need a professional network where they make the first move. A woman-owned, primarily woman-operated company, that's pretty mind-blowing in the tech space. Now, Bumble's culture of positivity is the engine behind the team's productivity. And in July, just a couple of months ago, Bumble launched SuperSwipe, its most recent monetization effort. Now, for $1.99 a time, Users can reinforce their interest in a match by pressing a heart sign over his or her profile picture. And this very simple move turned the company into the 25th most profitable app on iTunes. And that was a 35% increase from its previous position. And next year, Bumble will launch in-app advertising that will be tailored to users. It'll give you a chance to swipe right on pizza, for example, before offering a coupon to the pizzeria that's just around the corner. Like I said, Bumble is really buzzing. She is a very smart woman. And uh, so congratulations and Good luck with it. I hope it really does well because it um, it deserves to. Just thinking, how many of you ever filled out a dating app? There's nothing like filling out a dating profile to make you realise just how boring you really are. 
you know, you look at dating profiles and there's guys who jump out of aeroplanes and go to the bottom of the ocean and wrestle sharks and, you know, <laughs> by comparison, I am boring. Do you get my 30-second daily read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read, sometimes a minute. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars and blockchain. We had a Yesterday, we talked about the 10 most powerful women in business, and the response was fantastic. I don't know whether it's just that um, most of the subjects are, you know, either neutral or a bit techy, but um, when we when we do women's issues, the response is phenomenal, and yesterday we got absolutely overwhelming response and not only for women from women a lot of those responses were from men so thank you very much for that the newsletter is free f-r-e-e we do not give our mailing list to anyone at all you will not get solicited for anything and the information is invaluable so now if you don't get it just go to my website which is bobpritchard.com I know a lot of you do because we know from the visitation numbers and just enroll and within two or three days you will start receiving it. I don't know whether you've noticed but through this summer a large number of brands have been using snap codes. Now snap codes are Snapchat's version of QR codes uh, to elevate their marketing campaigns on the platform to another level. Snap codes are potentially huge. Users are, are already scanning over 8 million codes a day and they help brands connect traditional and digital advertising and it gives them access to data, of course. Snapchat's a fun, interactive platform and snap codes are unique as they seamlessly connect social and real world experiences. If you haven't tried it, you should. It's it's really fun. It turns out that you know everyday objects like cans and bottles and cardboard cups can serve can serve as the perfect gateways for Snapchat, as demonstrated by Gatorade and Wendy's and Evian this current summer. By plastering snap codes onto product packaging, print, and even out of home ads. These brands have been able to encourage people to use their smartphones to unlock exclusive branded filters, lenses, custom websites, and even Snapchat-specific mobile games. Evian, for example, printed snap codes on over 300 million bottles across six countries, which opened up to exclusive branded content, including filters and lenses. Wendy's, on the other hand, put the codes on its drink cups, donating $5 to a foster care foundation every time someone scanned the code to unlock a custom Snapchat filter. It was a huge success. Charities benefited. And, of course, Wendy's was able to build their database and information. 
snap codes snap codes have been around well, I guess about 18 months I think um, but only recently has anybody really used them as a powerful weapon in a brand Snapchat marketing arsenal and the benefits for, of snap codes are huge the company says users are already scanning <coughs> oh excuse my cough the company says users are already scanning over 8 million codes a day now that's making for a pretty good audience that brands can target. And if uh, brands can give people a fun way to use Snapchat camera in the real world through branded filters and lenses, they're likely to spread the word to more of their friends. Avion's Live Young campaign, for example, saw over 2 million unique Snapchatters interact with its lenses and over 3 million people played around with their filters, and that's a pretty good response. It also provides free advertising. The snap codes are not actually ad products. They're free, and Snapchat said it doesn't charge advertisers extra for them. So that means that anyone can create a snap code that unlocks an external website from within Snapchat. I think the company calls this web view without anyone at Snapchat helping them. And if you want to have a snap code linked to their filter or lens campaign, Snapcat, Snapchat can create that for any brand for free. In other words, snap codes basically enable advertisers to reach more consumers and ideally amplify their paid Snapchat ad campaigns by tapping into existing behaviours. Very cool. But perhaps the most compelling advantage of snap codes is that they give brands an opportunity to collect data on some of their biggest customers. An app that has long been slammed for its lack of data to track return on ad spend, that is compared with some of its competitors, only the most engaged of fans, after all, would put in the effort to unlock exclusive content offered by brands. Gatorade, for instance, wanted to reach and inspire its core consumer base of young competitive athletes, providing them tools for athletic inspiration and utility, a bit like training videos. It decided to tap into snap codes to give its fans access to exclusive branded content and also ended up accomplishing a key business goal along the way. Now, that's because users who wanted access to the brand's content, featuring pro athletes um, Carl Anthony Towns and JJ Watts. Now, there's a great guy, JJ Watts. I'm not sure what the finished number was with Watts, but he was up, you know, he, you know, he set out to raise $200,000 for Hurricane Relief, and last number I saw, he was at $28 million. And he did it personally, and he was out there 24 hours a day, an incredible effort. Anyway, I digress. He probably helped the campaign, though. Um, so they added their names and email addresses to unlock it. Now, Gatorade has 100,000 highly engaged fans that it can retarget moving forward. And the good thing about snap codes is they can be incorporated into a marketing campaign for no additional cost. But developing and, and deploying snap codes across traditional media placements still requires extra creative. And of course, you've got to lend your production costs and resources. 
Still, it's a very simple and a very cool interactive idea. Now, the state-owned China Aerospace Sciencing Technology Corporation is developing the next generation of trains. Now, we talk around in this program a lot about Hyperloop, but the new generation of Chinese trains, they're expecting to be able to travel at speeds of up to 2,500 miles an hour. They're trains. And uh, Chinese scientists have also announced an intercity train that will travel at 600 miles an hour. And that's clearly designed to compete with Elon Musk's Hyperloop. Now, Hyperloop, as you know, uses air instead of wheels and can travel at more than 700 miles an hour. But it's, they're definitely aiming for the same target market. I think um, last I heard, Bebop was saying that Bebop is the um, head of Hyperloop and he was saying that uh, I think they have something like 150 or 170 orders from around the world for Hyperloop. Now, Chinese scientists are looking to develop the super fast trains of the future that can fly on the ground. So with connections to China's Defence Ministry, China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation They've already been involved in developing satellites, rockets and missiles. Now they're turning to trains. And China already has the largest network of high-speed trains in the world and it's obviously keen to keep the leadership. Officials say they're working with more than 20 other research institutes, both domestic and international, in the quest to create the 2,500 miles per hour trains. I'm not sure that I want to be on a train doing 2,500 miles an hour. I don't like being on a plane doing 600 miles an hour much. So uh, four times that on the ground in a train, mm, bit disconcerting. But even 700 mile an hour trains, it's just around the corner. You know, nobody can deny it. Mightn't like it, but it's almost here. And it's going to seriously disrupt, when you think about it, it's going to disrupt all forms of passenger ground travel, you know, buses and trains and cars and all of those things. But it's also going to disrupt airlines. If I could go from here to New York in an hour in a train or drive to the airport, take an hour, wait an hour at the airport, go through all that bullshit you got to go through, get delayed on the tarmac, fly to New York, get out, go through all that stuff at the other end, I'm taking the train all day long. It's also going to disrupt freight. If you're a freight company, would you rather send your freight by train across the country in an hour or stick it on a truck and have somebody drive it for four or five days and maybe not even get there? And there's a whole bunch of other industries that are going to be affected as well, so... It's really interesting. My guest today is Benjamin Oberman. He's an entertainment executive and a former producer, writer, and director. He's a really good guy. He's at the forefront of the creation, development, and implementation of the film festival Flicks, as well as the acquisition and development of Mousetrap Films Film Library. I met him at Metal. He's a fantastic guy. And I'll be back with Benjamin on Voice America Business after this short break. 
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Business Radio Show, where we try to give you an insight into the lives of some of the most interesting and extraordinary people and find out what it is that perhaps make them tick to give us a few clues on what we should do ourselves. You know, most of the people that I've ever met that do different and extraordinary things, they began life in average, pretty ordinary circumstances like most of us. What makes them take on interesting and unusual projects and what makes them great? Well, that's what we try to find out. My guest today is Benjamin Oberman, an entertainment executive and a former producer, writer and director. His unique perspective on the process of being an independent filmmaker has allowed him to be at the forefront of the creation, development and implementation of the film festival flicks, as well as acquisition and development of Mousetrap Films' film library. As we all know, content is king. In a career spanning 15 years in the entertainment industry, Benjamin's produced three feature-length documentaries, He's executive produced and produced the feature narrative film Ornaments. He's developed eight feature narrative scripts, including Wildwood Inn. For television, he's developed an original one-hour drama series, The Edge. He's written, directed and produced four branded entertainment internet viral videos and cable commercials for Sega Entertainment and USA Gameworks as well as producing multiple national commercials and PSAs and created, produced and executive produced the Adventure Relay Race Extreme Tower Relay. So our friend Benjamin has done one hell of a lot. But interestingly, and this was interesting to me because as those of you who listen to this program know, I was involved with Katarina Witt and uh, Robin Cousins for quite a long while and uh, prior to his career in entertainment Benjamin was a world-class figure skater professional highlights include the 2002 Olympic Games Radio City Christmas Spectacular starring the Rockettes and the role of Chuck Cranston in Footloose on Ice with Nancy Kerrigan and he was also a figure skating consultant on the DreamWorks Paramount Pictures film 
Blades of Glory with Will Ferrell. That's pretty good. I like this guy already. Benjamin, welcome to the Bob Pritchard radio show. How are you? I'm great, Bob. Thanks for having me. So, that's a big step from figure skating to uh, film producing? Looking backwards, it makes perfect sense. Back when I was figure skating, I would have never in a million years told you that I'd be where I am today. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure I was. I I got quite heavily involved in um, in figure skating for a while and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. had had a lot of fun. Um, so, what is Film Festival Flicks? Film Festival Flicks is a platform that we have developed. That the idea being that there are great films in this world that premiere on the festival circuit. They qualify. They win awards. Yep. And traditionally, they would never, never be seen again. And a lot of the reason for that was because there was a gap and nobody knew how to market a film that was just good. Right. If it didn't have an A-list star or a best-selling novel, or it a was just relevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it just disappeared. And so looking at why film festivals were becoming more and more successful, why uh, event-driven uh, premieres like the Banff Mountain Film Festival World Tour or Warren Miller uh, or other events I've been to over the years, we, we kind of conceived this platform that we could take the experience that few people have as insiders at the exclusive festivals around the world, and we could bring them to people in their hometown every single month, and util- using that opportunity, get people to come out and see films that we knew that they would talk about. And because of the community nature and everything that goes along with it, we knew that the press would cover it. And so it's become a platform to help sp- launch films into the uh, general awareness of the world uh, while also building an online community for people who care about quality content and would and appreciate a curated site so where they don't necessarily know what the film is, but they know that there's a certain standard of quality to it, so it's not going to be a waste of their time and money. Are they all uh, films that um, do well at film festivals, or could it be any film at a film festival that um, you deem as good? It's it's really any any film that we deem as good. Uh, we look at, you know, do you care about the character? Do you get involved in the story? Do you care what's going to happen to them? Do you get taken on a journey to where you don't think about other things you'd rather do with your life and at the end of it do you feel satisfied with your experience as it happens most of them have won awards and that's probably because they were good films but it's not we we, we look at the awards second and the film first right so after the festival you then take the film out into the marketplace sort of mini market by mini market is that what you do Yes, over the course of a two to three week period each month, we tour the film with these uh, red carpet events to uh, community by community, and in some places, like the larger cities, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, it's often a one-night event. In other cities like Palm Springs, Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, it's the opening to a one-week run in theaters. But day and date with, as we're doing that, our goal is that when people either have the experience and tell their friends or people hear about the experience that they can immediately find the film anyway, anywhere that they're used to shopping. So we offer it directly on our digital platform. We offer it through our Facebook page and we also then have it available on the cable VOD platforms, internet like iTunes 
Xbox, Voodoo. Uh, we put it usually within a couple months into uh, home video retailers, and then later down the line, it will make its way to Netflix. So it really, it, it really is. Um, um films being driven by word of mouth because they're good films absolutely i there it would be cost prohibitive to try to do a traditional marketing campaign sure. and try to compete against the studios and so we went the opposite way of just saying we know that people will talk about the films the question is how do you get them to watch it i think i think that i think that's a wonderful idea so what inspired you to start this you were did you go straight from skating into producing is that and then well I, I i went from skating to abc sports and then abc sports to live entertainment and from live entertainment to tv and film yes and along the way i was starting to become increasingly frustrated with seeing you know really good films that we were working on that were packaged not getting financed while crap was getting made yeah and i was also seeing great films that were cutting through thousands of submissions to get into film festivals never to be seen again. Yeah. And I initially said, well, there's obviously, I know there's an audience who wants to see this, and there's obviously films that meet this criteria. Nobody's bridging the gap because it was, it's too small to move the needle for a studio. Yes. And other people just hadn't looked that way. So it initially started very simply as just to fulfill a gap in the marketplace which then, of course, led to discovering the, the challenge in marketing. And that is where I started polling people when I went to festivals, and I would ask them what they were there to see. Yeah. And the, the average answer was, whatever's playing at 2 p.m. Yeah. And I said, well, did you know what the film's called? No. Do you know who's in it? No. I said, do you know what it's about? No. Yes. I said, well, why are you here? And they said, well, because we just we figured if it's in the festival, it must be good. We wanted to be a part of it, and we know it's going to be a good we, film. Yeah, and then they said we can't get in at nighttime, so we wanted to be a part of the experience. And that was when kind of the light bulb went off of saying, ironically, like the key to marketing one of these films is to not market the film, but to create an event that can lead sure. people to see the film. Sure, absolutely. So the you'd be relying on making it an event. Um, a red carpet type event in each of these smaller markets so that you don't have to spend that much money on advertising the film. It's all about come along to the event. Is that how That's it works? Right. Okay. That's right. It's, it's, it's the same night every single month. So in Denver, Colorado, for example, it's the third Thursday of every month. In right. Los Angeles at, at LA Live, it's the second Wednesday of every month. And people look forward to it, and in, and each time they can come out, they can have a red carpet experience, yeah. see a film, they'll get to meet one of the filmmakers that we travel from around the world, and then they have an after party where they can socialize, connect, they can meet the filmmakers, they can meet other people in the industry, and have a great time. I think that's a great. I think that's a great idea. And once you go to those, mm -hmm. I. I um, I'm an Aussie, obviously, and I've, although I've been here 25 years, but I belong to Australians in Film, and uh, mm -hmm. they have an event on a regular, irregular basis, and uh, you go along for the for the opportunity to see a film. You usually don't know much about it, but it's the it's the total environment that um, gets the theatre full every every few weeks or whenever. Absolutely, now, but we uh, and we've done three Australian films. You should have come out. Oh. 
I don't think I was invited, but I know I will be from now on, right? Um, Absolutely. Well, it was, it was on the Australians in film page. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's been huge changes in movie distribution, and, but there's been also been big changes in the audiences that uh, you need to target because revenue is predominantly international rather than domestic. So how has the distribution for independent films changed, um, bearing in mind that we're now, well, theoretically, in, a, in an international environment? Sure. I, it, I, gosh, I mean, not even five years ago, DVD was a major component. A distributor would open up LA, New York, get their New York Times review, the LA Times review. They would spend, uh, you know, depending on a, a small release, anywhere between fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. But they knew that that was going to be marketing to get the DVD sales. Mm. The DVD sales are pretty much gone, other than Redbox, like Blockbuster. Uh, yep. You know, all those things have diminished to where that's not there. And of course, iTunes in the digital age has risen. Sure. But n but nobody knows how well your film is really doing until you get your statements. And we've passed the point where there's so much volume, it's no longer about getting onto the platforms because just because you're on iTunes doesn't mean that anybody's going to find it. Sure. So, so sure. I think we're at the phase now of, of much in the way of like we've kind of passed the big box retail stores that I think the same thing's happened. You've got Amazon, you've got Walmart, you've got iTunes, you've got all these various platforms. And so now the, the challenge for distribution is saying, how am I going to cut through and get people to discover my film and choose to watch it over everything else that's available? Yeah. So I, I think that for a lot of people, you know, the money is different, expectations. People still believe that they're going to have a home run and they're going to just put it up there and it's going to be a huge opening. And that's not the case either. I think we're looking now, unless you're a studio film, at more of the long-tail investment. You know, how can you keep churning the library over the next 15 years? How can you find ways to tap into audiences and go beyond just come out and have a fun time? Yeah. And I, I, go ahead. No, sorry, go on. I was going to say, and I think that for filmmakers, that's something that before they make their film, they need to sit back and ask the question, who's my audience and how am I going to reach them before they ever begin? Because just just going and making a film and getting into a festival doesn't really get you much anymore, except yeah. a lot of debt. And there's so, this proliferation of media, I mean, it's, it's, it's been extraordinary, really, when you look at it. And um, that... Which just has to have changed distribution dramatically. Absolutely, it's like there's the right. You know, you've got aggregators now that have risen up, but even them, they're starting to see in their model that now that there's such a glut in the volume, they're gonna, they're having to figure out how they can market and get placement. The sales agents are figuring out that their world is changing, and they may have to start becoming distributors. Right. Distribution now is more about marketing than traditional distribution, which was getting it from point A to point B. Yeah. So, and I guess the marketing is totally different because there's so much um, on things like Wig and those things that, um, and they're all driven virally, aren't they? They are. We're in a social media age. One of the pieces we offer to filmmakers is the ability that we are going to tour them around the country and inter introduce them directly to audiences who will connect with them and care about them. But ironically, a lot of artists are very shy. They didn't go into it. They haven't 
realize that the world has changed to where they're going to have to do that, and so they, you know, they, they either are very uncomfortable or they refuse to do it, and their film suffers for it because unless you're going to spend fifty million dollars on TV advertising, it's not worth spending a dime on it. Yeah. What is yeah, it? Sure. What is worth spending time is cultivating an audience through social media, community interaction, going, shaking hands, becoming friends with people, inviting them to learn who you are and to care about your career. And to a large degree, your most most of the bigger movies, they um, they stand on their own two feet. If you go along and see Man of Steel and you hate it it doesn't rub off on anything but if you go along to one of your events and you love the movie and you love the event then irrespective of what the next movie is you'll go along because of the total environment yes you're completely right we, it's, and it's completely opposite it, we, we realize that it's like a community everything has to support the next which is why we're so careful when we choose films that despite the many things we look at, I always say, both serious and joking, that if I start thinking of other things I'd rather do with my life while I watch your film, then we pass. Yeah, yeah. So what criteria do you look for in films? I, well, it starts with that one, uh, that sure. you have to engage me because I'm counting on repeat business, but also in, in the digital age. My wife and I all the time, it's like if we're watching a movie and we're not engaged in the first 20 minutes, yeah. we turn it off and we either look for something else or we both pull out the computer and start working. <laughs> now there's an yeah. indictment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we, I, we look at the characters, uh, you know, for, first and foremost, like, do, do I care about the character? Because if I don't care about them, I don't yeah. care what happens to them. Along the way, you then don't do get I involved. get taken on? Yeah, it's like, do I get taken on a journey that pulls me in and, and keeps my attention? Am I... Um, along the way, am I challenged, entertained, enlightened? Am I thinking of things that either make me think about myself or am I just being swept away? If it's a romantic comedy, I know that it's not going to necessarily elicit a lot of deep conversation, but I know it's an easy download on date night. Right. If it's a more difficult film about uh, you know, some sort of social issue or an ailment or a justice or war or something, is it, is it going to create uh, 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 something in me that makes me want to rush out and tell somebody about this film? Yeah. Because we all come home from work exhausted. So if it's a choice between a, com a Will Ferrell comedy or a film about genocide, I'm probably going to take the light one unless somebody's told me that I have to watch this other film about genocide. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So, and it's like we've seen some absolutely incredible films, but... They didn't elicit conversation, and so we had to sit there and say, it's a great film, there is a place for it, but not in our theatrical network because it doesn't, it doesn't con convert to the next level. So how many movies a year would you get behind? Right now, this first year, we, we got behind 12 films, one a month, one a and month, we're, yeah. now, we're, we're now uh, increasing in the third quarter of 2013 to two films, and by... Uh, 2014 we'll be doing at least two films a month uh, possibly occasionally adding in a third so it would be kind of a, a documentary film for a cause series our main feature which is anything from romantic comedy to foreign language to drama thriller sure. 
and then occasionally in select markets, a, a late night series, sort of your midnight madness, where it's the horror, thriller, yep. grindhouse genre for places that people actually stay up past 10 p.m. <laughs> so that rules out the middle of the country. Um, so who's your competition? We don't really have any. Uh, we've partnered with everybody. We, we've partnered with the film festivals. We've partnered with the theaters. We've even partnered with other distributors where our platform as we're aggregating this and building this community of independent film enthusiasts, we've said, well, this should be for all independent films. So uh, companies like Drafthouse Films have become yep. a partner and we're, and we're actually opening up one of their films uh, as the final festival run this, this coming month on our series. Right. And we created a partnership with The Video Project, which is a, a documentary company uh, with Films for the Cause, and they specialize in educational. And along the way, it's like we just, uh, there's a lot of people out there that have components of the system. Right. Uh, they're either pushing social media or digital or cable. And we meet them, and for independent, it, at this point in time, knock on wood, we seem to be the company with the complete system and we're able to integrate each one of those pieces into our system and enhance their business and they enhance ours. And synergistically, I, I like to believe that we're all advancing the, the independent film world and making more opportunities for quality films and filmmakers. Right. Do-it-yourself distribution movement seems like a pretty popular idea. It's certainly worked in the recording industry. Is it possible for filmmakers to successfully self-distribute it or do you get to a stage where it becomes so cluttered again that you have a problem it's it's a big pet peeve of mine like i think do-it-yourself filmmaking is absolutely a reality and it can be done very well do-it-yourself distribution is completely different skill set it the relationships that it takes are very different with the theaters the platforms and in most cases they don't have a lot of interest in building a relationship with one person who's going to make one film every six years, maybe. Sure, sure. Uh, and so the models where people are positioning do-it-yourself, to me, I, I call it do-it, uh, you know, assisted distribution because what they're doing is they're promoting that people go out and they raise money on Kickstarter yeah. and then hire consultants that specialize in theatrical booking or they pay the, the print and advertising costs to go through a larger aggregator that has the relationships to get them on there. So at the yeah. end of the day, they're still going through distributors, but they believe they're doing it their own. The only difference is, is that they're no. paying for it. And and I, I still go back to the idea that if your film is actually really good, somebody should be willing to invest in it beyond yourself. Sure. So what's the future of film festival flicks? Where do you end up going? Uh, we, we are continuing to expand across the country. By the end of this year, we'll have monthly events in 24 of the top 40 major markets. Right. And we'll continue to grow from there. We have, through our partnerships, the ability to reach hundreds of theaters with a simulcast every month. And our goal digitally is, uh, from an audience point of view, is to be at a million people that love independent cinema so that we can bring them continued great films as well as providing resources to any, anything you would imagine you would want to experience at a film festival so that we, if you choose to go, we'll be able to uh, provide all the resources to have an incredible experience and to do it right even if it's your first time there. Yeah, well, 
digital distribution certainly made a difference, hasn't it? It has. Uh, one person put it very well to me that five years ago, we used the internet to promote films in theaters, mm -hmm. and now we're putting movies in theaters to drive attention to the internet. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Benjamin, it's been great talking to you. I wish you all the success with, with it. I, I, I love it. I think it's a great idea, and I think it's... Um, um, something whose time has come as the industry's changed and it does give people the opportunity to see great films i look forward to being on your, being on your mailing list and uh, it's been good to speak with you now if you'd like to know more thank you if you'd like to know more about benjamin go to filmfestivalflicks.com that's filmfestivalflicks.com and i'll be back with more of the bob pritchard radio show after this short break From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Richard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're very proud to be the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week, we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment. And next week, we will be broadcasting from the shores of Sydney Harbour in Australia, where I've got a speech presentation during the week. And then we'll zip back here again before I head off to Spain. So it's been a pretty busy couple of months, which is good. Good thing. Now, you probably know that Toys R Us filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the US and Canada about a week ago. And, uh, of course, that doesn't affect the company's European, Asian or Australian operation. And stores in the US and Canada will remain open while... They sort out their reorganization. Now, the question, though, is did Amazon actually cause Toys R Us demise? And it would be easy to think that, yes, it did. The children's toy retailer was burdened with $5 billion in debt, which became difficult to pay down as online competitors drew in more customers online was to a large degree eating their lunch. Some same store sales in the last quarter fell 4.1% year on year and resulted in $164 million in losses. Now, when you got $5 million in debt, the last thing you need is $164 million in losses. Toys R Us efforts to reform its in-store and online shopping experiences were pretty bold, I thought, but they weren't enough to avoid bankruptcy. You know, the customer tried to, the, the company tried to uh, revamp its stores to enhance the in-store in experience. It created Nerf target practice areas. It allowed customers to fly drones, hoping that the interactive atmosphere would boost foot traffic and sales. And I think to some degree it did, but $167 million 
too little. It also price-matched online holiday deals from Amazon and other retailers in an attempt to win back customers from its online competitors. You know, those online competitors, once they smell blood in the water, they are deadly. And um, because there's so much money floating around and there's so many, uh, they have so many investors, they can afford to cut prices and make it hard for the likes of Toys R Us. Um, Toys R Us also added extensive omni-channel options to afford uh, shoppers more flexibility in their experience. The retailer provides four omni-channel shopping methods in stores, click and collect, ship to shore, reserve online, and pay in store and ship from store. So um, these omni-channel shopping methods have been very popular among customers and Omnichannel now contributes 42% of the company's e-commerce net sales and that's almost double what it was five years ago. However, Toys R Us may have actually written its own future when it signed a 10-year contract to be the exclusive vendor of toys on Amazon in 2000. Now, as we know, Amazon didn't observe that exclusive vendor relationship and it began to allow other toy vendors to sell on its site despite the deal. And uh, Toys R Us ended up suing Amazon to end the agreement in 2004. As a result of that four years... Toys R Us missed the opportunity to begin to develop its own e-commerce presence early on when it would have made the most difference, had the most effect. Now, Target did a similar deal with Amazon to run its e-commerce operations, but after it ended the partnership, it invested up to $2.5 billion per year to boost its own online site. So... Yeah, $2.5 billion a year is a fair bit of hooch. Toys R Us only recently announced plans to revamp its site and pledged a mere $100 million to its e-commerce efforts over the next three years. That's only $30 million a year. That's what, one ten millionth of what... Um, target allocated so yeah you're not going to win that one are you so this just proves that overlooking the importance of an online presence could prove a disastrous move for retailers particularly as digital sales are expected to reach 15% of all retail sales by 2021 that's only three years away now retailers have to transition to an omni-channel fulfillment model. They have to. For most companies, there are a whole bunch of challenges that complicate that transition. Brick and mortar retailers must cut delivery times and costs to meet online shoppers' expectations of free and fast shipping. I mean, I know we won't buy things unless we get either free or very fast shipping. Now, we're not interested in waiting 
two or three days for something to arrive. Just not interested. And omni-channel fulfilment services can help retailers achieve that goal while also keeping their stores relevant, reasonably relevant. Very few retailers have mastered all this and that's led to increasing shopping costs, shipping costs, sorry, that are eating into their profit margins. So, you know, if you try to deliver for free and you don't have the margin there, you end up losing money. In order to optimise costs and realise the full benefits of these omnichannel services, retailers have got to undertake costly and time-consuming transformations of their logistics, their inventory, their store systems and operations. And if you don't totally transform these things, if you're just going to continue to be another retailer, performing as you performed for the past umpteen years, you will lose. There's no question about that. So Toys R Us, $30 million a year into your online presence, just not going to do it. You know, so many people send Facebook messages. I'm not a great um, user of Facebook because I'm not a great believer in everybody out there knowing what I'm doing. Um, but I do occasionally send a, a Facebook message. And, you know, about a billion other people do too. They communicate through Facebook, through Messenger, every single day. Now, while Facebook says it takes measures to keep users' information private, how secure are those billions of messages? Well, via CCAR of Scilab at Carnegie Mellon University and a professor of electrical and computer engineer, engineering says that people can easily find ways around it. Facebook's messenger feature and app already include a fair amount of security. According to Facebook, Messenger uses the same secure communication protocols as banking and shopping sites. The company also says that it uses additional protection to stop spam and malware. And in 2016, Facebook added an additional security feature called Secret Conversations, which offers an encryption enhancement similar to default features from messaging app WhatsApp and Signal. WhatsApp, of course, which Facebook owns. Messages are end-to-end encrypted, which means not even Facebook can access them. However, while these encryption options are by default in apps like WhatsApp and Signal, users must choose to activate encryption on Facebook Messenger. So can people get around Facebook security? Well, it's important to note that anything can be hacked. Sometimes no amount of back-entry security will stop somebody from accessing your messages if they decide to do so and they're determined. And if someone's able to access your device, besides simply glancing at your messages, they may also be able to install a hidden spying app that can continue to access information in the background of your phone or computer. It's also possible for hackers to target a user's Facebook password by using password cracking tools or exploiting the ability to reset a password and then use that to sign 
onto your Facebook account. There's often enough someone can see on a public profile that gives them enough information to crack a password. Hackers can also download a fake app that can mimic Facebook or Messenger's interface, which also may be used to prompt a user to put in information, like a password, for example, that can be used by someone else. So how can you protect yourself from having your your messages hacked? Since a major route around uh, Facebook's protections involves gaining access to a person's phone, one way to help ensure your messages won't be read is to keep your device secure. Make sure there's a password on your device and that it isn't left unlocked to prevent people from gaining access in the first place. Making sure passwords use information that isn't publicly available and using different passwords for different accounts will also help make it harder for people to get into your accounts. But, you know, if you're like me and you've got, I don't know, 50 accounts in various things, it's very hard to have 50 different passwords that are all really difficult to, um, to work out. And to remember, impossible. So remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. You know, there's um, 8 billion people in this world and it's pretty easy to do the ordinary. It's pretty easy to be ordinary. But who wants to be ordinary? Who wants to leave this world saying, yeah, well, I was pretty ordinary? God, it's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed and if you're always trying to be normal you'll never know how amazing that you can be so i hope you can have a have a sensational week and i hope you can join me again next tuesday when i will be broadcasting from the shores of sydney harbour looking at the sydney harbour bridge in australia and uh enjoying a glass of wine and good weather in the meanwhile Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.